Hello, patriots. You're listening to Living with Liberty, your source for common sense and truth. I am your host, Ryan. Today we'll talk about the Biden infrastructure plan next on Living with Liberty. This infrastructure plan is nothing more than a repackaged Green New Deal, repackaged Obama administration uh, initiatives. And of course, it's stuffed with liberal wish list items that they want to try and ram through uh, Congress and get to Biden's desk for for signature. Now, only about 10% of this plan actually deals with actual infrastructure, you know, things like roads, bridges, airports, railways, etc. We are being set up here for another bill laden with pork for special interests, and really it's laying the foundation for pushing more Green New Deal crap in the future. So what's actually in this thing? Well, if we look at this, it's $2 trillion. Uh, We have 115 billion of that 2 trillion dollars 115 billion dollars to modernize the bridges highways and roads that are in the worst shape okay now that might be something that we can get behind there are a lot of bridges and roads that are in bad shape I, I, we all use them i i think that Honestly, I don't have a problem with that. I'm big on pain for what I use. I use the roads. I use the bridges. $115 billion. Okay, fine. This should be a $115 billion bill then, but it's not. So take that $115 billion and let's compare that though to the $174 billion proposed in this uh, bill, uh, proposed to build 500,000 electric vehicle charging stations. It's $174 billion to electrify 20% of school buses across the country and also to electrify the federal fleet, including U.S. Postal Service vehicles. So there's more money in here for green vehicles and conversions to green vehicles than for updating the roads and bridges that those vehicles will drive on. All right, I got it. That's your typical liberal thought process here. Well, let's, you know, let's throw uh, a little money at uh, roads and bridges, but oh, we need all these charging stations and we, we've got to convert everything to to uh, electrical. So school buses, those get those big dirty diesel school buses. Let's start converting those over to to electric. And of course, all of uh, you know every federal vehicle. Uh, ne- you know, look at this. Never mind. You know the debacle L.A. had that I covered with the uh, police vehicles. They tried to go all all electric with, and and uh, you know they're sitting in the garage in in the LAPD. Um, but yeah, let's let's throw 174 billion on that. Well, why don't we do this though? How, how about we, you know, let's cut a deal on this one. I got a little proposal here. First, let's take the 174 billion 
and place that on top of the 115 billion for roads and bridges. So let's let's take our road and bridge budget up to well, what's that about 289 billion there. Hopefully I did my math right. Good podcast math there hopefully. And if if they still want this 174 billion for vehicle conversions, electric charging stations, etc. Let's do this. Let's eliminate the health and human services and education departments. Eliminate these agencies. These are duplicative departments to what's at the state level anyway. The total budget for those two departments is $163 billion. So we're almost there. Let's throw in a couple other uh, departments, a couple other agencies here. Uh, let's throw in... Uh, getting rid of the CDC and the EPA. Uh, EPA is one of those, another duplicative federal agency of what's at the state. I think most, if not all states, have some sort of Department of Natural Resources, et cetera. Um, Might be called something different state to state. In Wisconsin, it's Department of Natural Resources, basically the EPA of Wisconsin. And the CDC has proven itself to be absolutely useless, so let's close that. We close those two agencies. Now we're at the $174 billion for the charging stations and electrifying the, the fleet. So Biden and, and uh, you know, the Green New Dealers here can, can have their, you know, electric utopia. I'm still going to drive my, my, uh, my gas uh, vehicle. Thank you very much. I don't really feel like getting stranded somewhere and having to, you know, only drive a couple hundred miles and then have to to charge my battery for eight hours or whatever it is. So that way the government can, you guys can do you and you know, it'll be paid for whatever. Uh, this plan also calls for $80 billion for Amtrak, $80 billion for upgrades to something uh, that very few ride outside of the Northeast Corridor, call it from Washington, D.C. up to Boston. I've actually taken that ride. It's it's actually a nice ride, but, uh, you know, it's probably the only place in this country it makes sense to have a, a rail like that. With It's basically one big city from D.C. to uh, up to Boston. So, but we'll, we'll, go, we'll give $80 billion to Amtrak, which has been failing for years anyway, maybe not to the extent of the postal service, but uh, you know, those trains aren't full. So this also uh, is interesting. Amtrak said that with this $80 billion, it would create 30 new uh, rail routes, 30 new uh, destination uh, or uh, yeah, destinations here that they would go to uh, 30 new origin destination combinations. Let's call it. Uh, So those 30 new routes that would really run mostly empty, let's call it, they'd be wasting our resources and uh, tax subsidies. That that $80 billion to do that could be spent more efficiently and uh, effectively elsewhere, namely back in our pockets. Or get back to roads and bridges. Let's throw that 80 billion on top of roads and bridges too. Now we can get to maybe uh, some of the ones that are going to be in bad shape within the next 10 years. Uh, There's an idea. Now, you know, 80 billion, let's put it into those things that people actually will use. 
uh, I look at it, commuter rails have their niche. Um, like I said, the Amtrak from in the Northeast is fine. There's uh, little commuter rails. I know we've got one in our area that runs into downtown Chicago. Those things have their niche. It's fine. But the long haul rail routes, uh, those were replaced by air travel long ago. It's time to let go of this dream that, you know, we're going to hop on the, the, uh, the Empire Builder uh, and ride out to the Pacific Northwest on it in, in any sort of, uh, of um, you know, kind of mass, um, mass migration might not be the right term, but kind of a, you know, a, a full train, let's call it, going out there. Um, the, the, that day's long gone as far as uh, those long haul rail routes are concerned. Now let's look at what are some of these routes that Amtrak is saying, oh, we can we'll add 30, 30 new ones here with this $80 billion. Let's take a look at what some of these are. One of them that they would say they would do is Detroit to uh, Detroit, Michigan to Toronto, Ontario. <laughs> well, once you got to Toronto, you'd have to go into one of uh, Trudeau's um, COVID hotels there for two weeks. So you know, your, your rail ride there is automatically extended by two weeks at this point. Um, but let, let's look at that. So direct, uh, Detroit to Toronto, it's a three hour, 46 minute car trip. Now put it on the rail. That's going to make some stops along the way. That's going to be uh, a lot longer than three hours and 46 minutes. Uh, that flight from Detroit to Toronto's I don't know, probably in the neighborhood of an hour and a half or so, maybe two hours, something like that. I would, I would bet. Um, I would just, you know, if I didn't want to fly it, I'd drive it. I wouldn't get on a train. I mean, this, this is absolutely stupid. Detroit to Toronto. All right. Um, now another one of these that Amtrak is proposing, if if they were to get this eighty billion dollars that Biden wants to give them, they would put in a route from Riverside, California to Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, the timing to drive this one is about the same as Detroit to Toronto by car. And again, uh, do you want to drive the three hours and 46-ish minutes from Vegas or from Riverside to Vegas? Or do you want to hop on the train? That's probably going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of five hours, maybe a little longer, because you'll get to the train station a little early and park and do all that. I mean, what are you going to pick, right? I mean, uh, another, just just stupid. And then if you think about it, um, this one I actually looked up, uh, LAX to Las Vegas is about an hour and a half flight, roughly. Now, this last one I'll highlight is a little bit longer of a trip by car. Uh, Amtrak's looking at uh, a Nashville to uh, Savannah, Georgia route. Uh, it's a like I said, it's, it's a longer uh, ride by car, seven hours, a little over seven hours, I think about seven hours, 15 minutes. Um, again, certainly longer by train. Um, you're probably looking, I would venture a guess in the neighborhood of, depending on my stops and how long the stops are, eight and a half, nine hours, maybe by train. Uh, the flight for this uh, route is in the neighborhood of an hour and a half. 
you know, again, I would it would be my guess. I actually I did look that one up. It is actually about an hour and a half. Uh, Southwest actually has a a direct route from Nashville, Tennessee to Savannah, Georgia. It's about, right on about an hour and a half. Now, again, what if I didn't want to drive it, I'd probably fly. I, I'd spend an hour and a half flight. I would spend about, um, you know, that might be about a three hour deal. Uh, call a little more, call about four, maybe four and a half hour deal with uh, getting to the airport and, planning and all that stuff on the other end so getting to the airport two hours early your hour and a half flight and then deplaning for about half hour to hour on the end so about four and a half hour deal so i take my four and a half hours or i can take my eight and a half or nine by train if i don't want to drive it by car I, these are just just stupid i but let's throw let's throw 80 billion dollars away here and what do you think most people are going to choose in these cases that thought doesn't cross anybody's mind, though, when they put this crap in these bills. And I think what it boils down to is trains have this allure of green mobility. I mean, we can stuff a ton of people on these trains and, and run the trains. And, you know, maybe it's maybe Biden wants to, to, you know, get in his little engineer overalls and his little engineer cap and pretend like he's uh, uh, captaining a locomotive here. I don't know. But... This is a total loser of a prospect here, and Biden wants to throw more money at it. Take that $80 billion and put it back into what we are actually going to use. Put that $80 billion, if you're not going to put in the roads, put in the airports then. Put it in things people are actually going to use en masse. Now, another beauty here is $400 billion for expanding long-term care services under Medicaid. How is this even infrastructure? You could at least make a somewhat of a case for Amtrak, Amtrak being infrastructure. How is Medicaid infrastructure? It's not. This is a way to slide money, more money, to Medicaid and actually to the unions without anyone noticing. I'll touch on the union piece of this in a minute here. There's $180 billion in this thing for research and development projects. Could anything be more vague? What are we paying to research and develop here? Rest assured, you plebeians cannot know. We're not going to tell you plebeians. It's just $180 billion for research and development. You can't possibly know. It's beyond your comprehension, you dirty, smelly Walmart shoppers. Circling or <laughs> getting. Back to the Medicaid piece here. The $400 billion for Medicaid is a handout to the Service Employees International Union, which uh, I guess does a lot of the Medicaid um, long-term care in-home type stuff, I think, is is what it is here, what I read. Um, so, you know, naturally, this is, <laughs> at any rate, it's a big Democrat donor. Now, along with this, $400 billion handout to a big Democrat donating union is also a call by Biden to the Senate to pass the PRO Act, which would strip all of the right to work laws off of the books of the 27 states that have enacted them. In addition, this law would expand the 
uh, National Labor Relations Board's ability to fine employers that violate employees' organizing rights. But I'm going to guess Jeff Bezos would probably not be on their radar. So in essence, if you work in a unionized shop then, and you work in a state that has right-to-work laws on the books, those would uh, be canceled, and now you would be forced Basically, you're forced, uh, ba- you'd be forced to pay to work. You would be forced to give compulsory dues to the union and to an organization that would then turn that fund or those funds, those union dues that you pay in around and give them to organizations and political party that are in opposition to your views and really in opposition to freedom and liberty. There's no freedom and liberty in compulsory union dues. You have a right to that job. It's your choice whether you pay the union there or not. Not only that, it would start to blow up state and municipal budgets again. Getting rid of the the, uh, right-to-work statutes on states' books would then uh, allow... um, compulsory dues to be collected by public service unions again to be and really this is that that act 10 that came uh that we enacted in wisconsin 10 11 years ago 10 years ago 10 years ago now um is really a contributing factor to why we we have budget surpluses it's a contributing factor to why our rainy day fund uh, has has grown to almost a billion dollars as a state. It's because we we uh, passed that Act 10, which eliminated the compulsory union dues for the the public employee unions. What are you going to do if if I don't have to pay the union? I'm not going to. It's it's my money. Why do I have to pay to work? Again, it goes back to the freedom and liberty piece of this. I should be free to work any job I want, and it's up to me if I want to pay the union or, or not uh, it, it, to pay that organization. I mean, it, pl- it seems pretty simple to me. And of course, Joe Biden is pushing some propaganda here with this and in, in his push to get the PRO Act passed. He says that passing the PRO Act guarantees union and bargaining rights for public service workers. But it's already illegal to prevent workers from organizing. And if they organize, then they all have those bargaining rights. You know, whether they're public or or, uh, privately uh, or private uh, employees in in public or private unions. If employees want to form a union, it's already protected by law. Again, public or private, doesn't matter. It's already protected by law. No company can say you can't organize. Now, companies all the time uh, try to dissuade organization, try to dissuade employees from forming a union. Uh, we saw it down in uh, Alabama with the, the Amazon warehouse. They, Jeff Bezos didn't want to allow mail-in voting for uh, for the union vote there. Now, what is this really all about here? Biden's really just attempting here to restore the funding for the unions in the form of these compulsory dues. 
uh, these right to work laws have, um, like I said, really have taken away the the uh, monetary clout of the unions. And what he wants to do is again take a, take away the choice, take away liberty from the worker as to whether the union is worthy of them funding it or not. Biden wants the unions funded so the DNC's coffers can be funded even more than they already are by the unions. Just as simple as that. This is a play. It's a play for money. It's a play to to satisfy the union donors uh, by getting rid of these right to work states and then trying to cloak it um, as something that would guarantee union and bargaining rights for public service workers. If they formed a union, they already have that. It's it's illegal otherwise to to not have that. All it's all these right to work legislations have done is take away the compulsory union dues. Now, also in this bill is twenty billion dollars for racist roads. Yes, there's twenty billion dollars earmarked to redress communities whose neighborhoods, typically non-white as the Chicago Tribune notes it, were divided by highway projects. So down come these racist roads. Uh, it just never ends. I, that was probably the stupidest thing ever. That might have been one of the stupidest line items in this thing. Um, the roads get built where they're built for efficiency's sake, not whatever. <laughs> Uh, the last thing here I'll note from this debacle of a proposal is what should be the most concerning for all of us. And as is a lot of the case here in the theme, this is not infrastructure related at all. There is $213 billion earmarked to produce preserve and retrofit more than 2 million affordable houses and buildings. Now you may be saying, what's the problem with that? Though I think um, knowing my audience I, and knowing that you, you all are the smartest audience a host could ever ask for, you can probably see where this is going to go and, and you probably see it from 10 miles away. There's five major elements to this housing plan against, let's call it a housing plan. It's not an infrastructure plan. Uh, Houses have nothing to do with roads, airports, highways, bridges, nothing, none of that. It's, it's a housing plan and it's really, you'll see it's a uh, probably a, um, a recycling of Obama era kind of housing activities, let's call it. Now, the first thing in in this uh, section, uh, Biden's plan here uh, for this $213 billion calls to uh, for the rehab, retrofit, and building of 1 million homes for renters. The proposal calls to produce, preserve, and retrofit 1 million homes, or 1, 1 million affordable, resilient, accessible energy efficient and electrified housing units. So let's get all that in there properly. So it's, we're, you know, we're green new dealing this housing deal here too, I guess. 
uh, and to do it through a variety of tax credits, formula funding, grants, and project-based rental assistance, whatever that means. So if we look at this thing, the question I have is, is who will ultimately own these rental units? No, I'm assuming that it's going to be landlords. I'm assuming that it, it'll be some sort of public, private enterprise here. But I'm guessing also that with this come caveats and rent controls on uh, what landlords and property management companies can do. Now, what landlord or property management company is actually going to want to go near this endeavor? Uh, you've got the government involved. You've got what I'm assuming will be some rent controls and things like that placed on these uh, homes and and uh, buildings. You know, I look at it. It's it. If, if I'm in that in that um, in that uh, industry, and if I have a land management company or property management company, I look at this and I say this is going to be a losing prop uh, proposition for me. I'm not going to make any money on this thing. You know, so what does that leave then? I, you're going to have a couple things here. It either leaves the government as the landlord and gets the government in the landlord game here, which means we, the taxpayer, will be on the hook for maintaining all these properties. Uh, or we're being set up here for centralization of, of uh, the housing market here. Now, the second part of this plan, this housing plan, the second part of the $213 billion that the Biden administration wants or the Harris administration or whatever they're calling themselves these days, is to build 500,000 affordable houses for low and middle income buyers. These sound like renters to me. Um, you, you know, I know back in the day with when I was uh, just starting out, uh, my wife and I just starting out, didn't have two nickels to rub together, weren't necessarily thinking about buying a house at that time. Uh, why do we need to build, use government funds to build half a million affordable houses, you know, whatever that means. And actually, we'll see what some somewhat what that means in a minute here. Um, I look at it like this. If, if, if we had a government that wasn't so insistent on creating uh, creating a dependent class of people, there would be no need for affordable housing for low and middle income buyers. They, if people were allowed to work and weren't told that they they weren't gaslit and they weren't um, made to to see the government as, as their savior, as, as, you know, as the entity that is going to, you know, be there all in all, there, there would be no need for this. People would have the funds, they would work, they would do whatever to, um, if they wanted to buy a house, they would find the means to do it. Now I'm not saying that, you know, there's, there's obviously, um, I'm talking about those that are capable. We, you know, the, if you're on, you know, not capable disability, um, 
you know, things like that. You have uh, autism, whatever. Um, that's a different story. I'm talking about capable people here. And low and middle income buyers tells me that these people have a job and you're capable. Why do we need to spend government money to build affordable houses for these people? Figure out, you know, what you want and, and go you'll go get it. That's the American way, right? I mean, we have freedom and liberty to do what we need to do. So, the, you know, that's the other thing. You're adding half a million houses in here, building half a million houses on top of retrofitting and building a, a million um, housing units. So let's call those more your multifamily apartment type deals with that. Um, I look at this, there's a whole lot of, uh, of non, not anybody doing any critical thinking on this at all. It, you know, as, as anybody thinking about what this would do to the construction industry, how does this affect, how, how do we get these things built? Now, many left the trade, the construction trade, after the last housing bus. There were a lot of home builders that went belly up in that last housing bust and many have you know not returned to the industry there's there's still a lack of skilled tradesmen out there to to you know to do plumbing to to do carpentry to you know to do these things many never went back into it they found other uh, other jobs they acquired other skills and got into you know what are better jobs May, you know maybe they you know, they went the route and got an office job. I, who's going to trade that in for going back to construction? I mean, not many. I, I don't think not many. You know, look at this too from this aspect of the home builder. What home builder or even a remodeler is going to take on a government job building re or rehabbing a house when there are plenty of paying customers who want the high-end houses built? Are there high-end house remodeled. Now, like I said before, this to me looks like we're going down a path of a centrally planned housing market where daddy government tells the home builders what they are going to build. They're going to tell the remodels, remodelers, you're going to remodel our buildings here so we can have the affordable uh, and green housing. The other thing here nobody's thinking about is what about the materials? Lumber's already through the roof. Uh, you can't, you know, I'm hearing and seeing lumber shortages, uh, you know, all over. Um, and that was a little bit before with, you know, there's still a bit of a housing boom and housing starts and all that. Uh, we've got plastics and resins that, you know, build things like, uh, you know, vinyl windows, et cetera, that are short. And copper, copper through the roof right now is a commodity. Uh, is anybody thinking about this stuff? It, it, you know, and it's no coincidence that they're pumping all this money in in uh, to the economy already, and this stuff is is shooting out. What what's an extra two hundred thirteen billion dollars to go into the housing uh, development market here going to do to all those uh, materials? So is the is the government then going to take control of these markets to funnel the materials for their uh, for Biden's little pet projects here of rehabbing houses and building houses. Uh, when did we get into the general contracting uh, 
when did our government get into general contracting and deciding that we're going to build more houses? It, lastly, think about what this uh, flood of homes and these rehabbed homes, what would that do to the value of your home if you happen to own a home? It's going to drive down home values. That's the what it, you know, you flood any market with something with a product, what's going to happen? It, 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 the value and, and price goes down. That's what's going to happen here. We're going to all of a sudden flood the market with all these homes and it's going to drive down home values. And, and you think about the improvements you may have done to your home. You, you've spent money there in, in, in hopes of recouping it, you know, fairly quickly. Well, if you spent money on updating your home, you flood the market with homes drives the price down and now it's going to take longer for you to realize the payoff of, um, of your home, of your home improvement project. So the next uh, point of the plan here is um, update and upgrade public housing. Biden's plan calls for 40 billion here. Some of which would include making energy efficient upgrades that would cut down on operating costs of public housing. Uh, what again? Okay, um, what I say here: shut down HUD and use that budget to do the repairs on public housing. HUD's budget is forty-seven point nine billion dollars. That'll cover the cost of this one. Take it out. I, you know, I, I don't. I, again, I don't. I'm not sure what HUD exactly. You know, what their their function is, other than to be funded and and. I don't know. I, I look at it, it's another useless government entity to me. Now, the fourth point uh, is a, a focus on clean energy investments in a, the uh, disadvantaged communities. Uh, here it is again. So we're getting into more identity politics and um, getting more, again, getting back to getting people on the government teat here. Biden wants to create a $27 billion clean energy and sustainability accelerator in order to mobilize private investment in things like rooftop solar panels, natural gas turbines, and wind turbines, as well as retrofits of residential, commercial, and municipal buildings, and also clean transportation in underserved communities. So who pays for this? $27 billion to incentivize private investment in these things. Uh, why are we giving money to incent something? If the private sector wanted this, we wouldn't have to dangle a carrot of $27 billion out there. If there was a an actual market for this stuff, then no incentivization would be needed. And you think about it, these uh, solar panels, wind turbines, they don't put out the same amount of energy as your traditional electrical plants. That's why there's not a market for this stuff, a a large-scale market. Now, there's some niche markets, obviously, and some forced ones like California, et cetera, and and what we've seen, but we've seen what the, you know, what, what happened in Texas earlier this year, what um uh, you know a major reliance on this stuff you know ends up biting you um if you don't have 
you know, proper kind of backups and, and alternate solutions. I mean, more green, uh, green new deal stuff. I, it, to me, that's kind of a ridiculous one there. Clean transportation. Well, walk if you want clean transportation. It doesn't get any cleaner than uh, getting out and walking wherever you need to go. Uh, now, again, I say that big, bit tongue in cheek because if you live in a rural area like I do and you commute to work, that's obviously not possible. But you're within the city. A lot of people in the city don't own cars anyway. You know, if they're in the major city centers, you want clean transportation, walk. I look at this, it has nothing to do with infrastructure, obviously. It having, and this really has everything to do with giving communities handouts of federal dollars so they will be beholden to whatever the federal government wants. They'll be beholden to uh, the, the, when the federal government comes and says, we're going to take over your community and we're going to have centralized control of your community. You have to do it. We gave you money. That's the strings. Those are the strings that were attached. Now, the last point of this plan is one that any homeowner or potential homeowner, or you know, even to a certain degree, if you rent a home, you should be concerned with this. This last part of the plan here, it, it calls for eliminating exclusionary zoning laws. Now, this is yet another power grab and centralization of of housing within the federal government. You know, those exclusionary zoning laws are things that, uh, like you can, your house has to be a certain size. Lots uh, have to be a certain size. You can only park in certain areas. Uh, you know, things like that. That, that, those are the exclusionary zoning laws. Now, would this type of thing affect Obama's house on Martha's Vineyard or Pelosi's mansion with the freezers that are worth more than my car? <laughs> you bet they're not going to. Obama's still going to have that mansion with nobody around him on his on the seaside, and you know it, they're not going to be putting up apartments in Pelosi's neighborhood anytime soon. It, you, what this is, it's this is really to affect the middle class neighborhoods. And I think more specifically, uh, suburban and, and rural uh, neighborhoods and subdivisions. It, you know, the, it, this is really due the fact that you actually worked and saved to move your family to a desirable neighborhood would be all done away with. It'd be all for naught if this were to get enacted. Now, there's a reason that exclusionary zoning laws are appealing not only to homeowners, home buyers, even, even the home, you know, home renters, but also to the individual municipalities as well. These exclusionary zoning laws generate more tax revenue from the homes because there's certain, you know, the mill rates and everything that, that go with it, that it gen, it, you get more tax revenue from, actual houses that are on certain size lots and certain size houses, then if you let multi-family homes and apartments in, those multi-family homes and apartments are a drag on property values, which in turn is a drag on the property tax revenue. The Biden plan wants to do away with the exclusionary zoning laws, so more multi-family and more affordable, in quotes, housing can be built. 
The whole idea here isn't to create more affordable housing, but it's to pack more people into suburban and rural communities. Rural and suburban communities tend to have higher home values. The property values are more. It's, it's all a direct function of those zoning laws. Again, house of a certain size, a yard of lot of a certain size. I mean, they're, they're, communities do that in order to maximize their own tax revenue. And you think about it, you live where you want for a reason. I live in a rural community for a reason. It's so I don't have to deal with the nonsense, the crowdedness of the big cities. So I don't have to deal with, with, with just the idiotic policies and, and the ridiculous uh, uh, municipal laws that are put in place. But what, what Biden wants to do here is he wants to punish those who have been successful, who put in the blood, sweat, and tears to save enough money and to gain enough equity maybe from the first house or first couple houses uh, to put that towards a, a new house, to move, to be able to move somewhere where they feel they can raise their family in peace, to where their kids are going to have better schools, to where their, the quality of life is better. Uh, you know, from that, that's a big part for me. I think my quality of life is better living in a rural community than being in a crowded city. Biden wants to put more affordable housing in the suburbs. That's the aim anyway. That's what he says. And it's, it's these efforts that, that he's talking about putting in here. You can be sure they're not going to be in the cities. It's, it's, these affordable houses are going to be put in the suburbs. There's, and there's a reason for it. We'll get to it in a second. It's not that there's a, a lack of affordable housing in any big city. You can go on realtor.com and look at properties in Detroit or Milwaukee. There's houses going for as low as $2,500. <laughs> now, yeah, they need work. Some of them are boarded up. Some of them probably should be raised. They look like they're leaning a bit. But the whole aim here, it, 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 the affordable housing is just a ruse. It, it's another marketing ploy by the Democrat Party. What this is really about is driving Democrat voters to the suburbs, to the rural communities, to the communities that typically uh, stay conservative or vote conservatively. Why is that? It's so they can start to take over the state governments. A look at the breakdown of Wisconsin. Outside of Milwaukee and Madison, the rest of the state, for the most part, is very, very red. There's a few other pockets outside of Milwaukee and Madison. But as a whole, the state is, is red. And as a result, about two-thirds of our state assembly uh, is, is Republican. And I think at this point, we're encroaching about um, two-thirds of our state Senate is Republican. We are very close to having a, a veto override of the governor in both of our state houses. That is why they want to push Democrat voters to the suburbs. It's also working, or it's also about, this whole thing is also about punishing those who work to, to move to these suburban areas, who don't vote Democrat. It's about punishing those who moved out of the cities and created successful, vibrant, and well-off communities 
outside of these Democrat hellholes in these large cities. What this whole plan is about, it's, it, this call for affordable housing, is about centralizing people for easier control by an overbearing and overreaching federal government. And really, this this whole housing deal is just a repackaged, affirmatively furthering fair housing rule that the Obama administration had set and the Trump administration thankfully eliminated. That's what this is. It's it, it, it's a repackaging of that rule. It's it, and it's a it, it's a, a ploy to to say we need more affordable housing in the suburbs. And really, it's to put the more affordable housing in the suburbs so they can move more Democrat voters out to the cities, into the suburbs, and try and flip the states blue. That's what this is. And you think about this, too, and why the you know you look at this and it seems familiar. Biden has not had an original thought in his life, it seems. And this housing plan is is no different. It, like I said, it's a repackaging of of Obama's rule he had put in impl- uh, put in place in his administration. Now, for a bit of good news, there and there is good news here. Uh, the, you know, despite the fact that this housing or yeah, there is a housing plan, but this infrastructure plan, infrastructure in quotes, which it seems to include housing and social justice and everything else in it. Uh, there's good news here. Uh, and we've had, uh, some speaking out against it. Uh, Joe Manchin has, has come out against this infrastructure plan as it sits today. Take it for what you will, right? Um, this day and age with the split Senate, I'll take anything. Uh, Manchin notes that this plan will hurt American competitiveness. And, and really why it does is Manchin notes that the corporate tax hike, which, uh, to fund the plan, which, which, Biden's calling for a, a corporate tax inc- uh, increase uh, from 21% to 28%. Uh, that's what Manchin's sticking point here is. Uh, Manchin said he would only support an increase of uh, up to 25%, which he claims that corporates uh, corporations say, um, yeah, you know, we're good with 25%. I, I don't, you know, I'd challenge him on see which corporations are telling him that i don't you know i i think if you went down to 15 percent, corporations would still say it's too much i'd say that's too much but uh, hey well you know we'll take that support and kind of the roadblock here on this thing from getting rammed through any way we can so you know even even let's say even that 25 percent, let's say okay uh 25 we can get joe manchin i think at that rate uh of a hike, there's still a lot of cutting that would need to go on with this plan to, to be able to get Manchin's vote. Because if, if you're trying to figure this in at a, a 7% hike on corporate taxes and you're only going to get 4%, you're not going to be able to pay for this thing. Um, so you'd have to cut a lot of it out. Uh, I, and I'm not sure, you know, I look at this, I'm not sure Obama is going to let Biden chop up his infrastructure plan. Uh, you know, I, I think we look at this, I say that a bit tongue in cheek, but you see some of the stuff you, you kind of have an inkling of who's running the, the show here. Uh, you know, another thing is we still have the filibuster intact for now. So that's an option is there, uh, out there as well for stopping this debacle of a plan from moving forward. 
I say contact your reps on this too. Let, let's get out ahead of this. Let them know you don't support this plan. It costs way too much. Uh, and there's way too much non-infrastructure stuff in here that we do not need to be paying for as the taxpayers. You know, roads and bridges, I'm okay with that. I think a lot of people would be okay with that. I think we all notice the uh, condition our roads and bridges are in. I think we need, you know, we realize that we need to do something. Uh, you know, I think I'd be okay with that. Uh, that's fine. Again, it's something I use. And we need good, solid roads and bridges to move goods around the country. It, it, a healthy infra- infrastructure is what enables a vibrant econ- economy. It's the lifeblood of of commerce. Uh, the rest of this plan, though, it, we can just tell them to ball this thing up and throw it in the garbage. That's my show for today. Thank you for listening. If you'd be so kind, please share my show and subscribe. If your listening platform allows, please leave a positive review. I'd be greatly appreciative. It helps us move up the charts and helps more people find the truth. I appreciate you spending part of your day with me. Please help us spread the truth by sharing my show and website with friends and family. My website is livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Also, let's connect. You can do that by subscribing to my show as well as signing up for notifications. Follow me on social media. My main account is on Parlor. I am at Living with Liberty. I am also on MeWe. Just search for Living with Liberty. Liberty isn't a given. We must fight to protect it. Working together, we will do exactly that. Until next time.